So uh, Adrian Payne is not your ordinary professional basketball player. Uh, Adrian Payne, um, he went to college at MSU, Michigan State University, <clears throat> excuse me, and he became this, this, this big star there, All-America. Um, he was drafted, I think maybe 10 or 12 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago. First round, number 15, by the Atlanta Hawks. Um, signed the whole shoe contract in Europe, that kind of thing. Uh, but he's, uh, he wasn't just uh, this big athlete, but he was also... Um, an academic. He was smart. And so, I mean, he, he graduated, which puts him aside from a lot of athletes who don't graduate from college. They just go to the pros without graduating. So he has a BA in interdisciplinary studies, so not basket weaving, but a real degree from a real school. And he was an academic All-America, won Scholar Athlete Awards as well. But it wasn't always glitz and glamour for Adrian Payne. In fact, when he was in JK, he was diagnosed with this very severe learning disability that uh, made it imp almost impossible for him to learn how to read. And so from JK on, he was put in the special ed class. Now, I don't know if you remember special ed classes. I'm sure they still have. I remember in elementary school, special ed classes, and I wasn't in one of them. But I remember how other students would make fun of students who were in special ed classes. And that was his life growing up, from JK all the way up. He would come home uh, and just kind of in tears, being teased, being called names like dummy and stupid and idiot. When he was 13, and he was raised by a single-parent mom, when he was 13 uh, and he was at home, and his mom came stumbling out of the kitchen gasping for air. She'd been cooking in the kitchen and the kind of the food got away from her and it started to get a lot of smoke and she suffered from severe asthma. And so she's laboring uh, upstairs to try and get her inhaler and as she's going upstairs, young Adrian is following her upstairs and she gets outside and she sticks her head out the window just kind of gasping for air and she's telling her son loudly, like, Adrian, find my inhaler, find my inhaler. And so he's searching frantically all over the house, trying to find her, his, her inhaler. He's like, Mom, I can't find it, I can't find it. And she takes her head back in the window, she takes several steps towards him, and she collapses into his arms and dies. Thirteen years old, and his mom died in his arms. And so... He was despondent for a while. He was, uh, you know, you can imagine how hard that would be. But he was able to find solace in the church, Omega Baptist Church to be specific. And as a young lad, he went to church every day and sat in the front every, sorry, every Sunday, sat in the front every Sunday, listened intently to the preacher as he preached every Sunday. And by God's grace, God kept young Adrian away from the gangs and guns and violence and drugs that had enveloped a lot of his friends. And so as Adrian grew and obviously grew and went to a, a MSU on this full scholarship and became this big man on campus, this major university, so how did this basketball star spend his time away from the court, 
away from the games, away from practice? How did he spend his time? Like, was it just gaming or, you know, partying, doing the party scene, that kind of thing? No, he would actually go back to his school, you know, the school where he got called names like dummy and stupid and idiot, and he would share his story with those students and with the staff there. And he would look especially for people that he felt, he felt were fringe kids, kids, kids kind of on the, on the fringe and not really quite fitting in. He said this, he says, me being in that special ed class and the other stuff I've gone through, it made me want to help kids and be friendly to people who are going through a tough time. One of his high school teachers described Adrian in this way. She said, he has an innate ability to know when someone needs attention, when someone needs to be reached out to. That's him showing his heart. It's almost like he's using all that pain from his past to say, how can I turn this into a positive? Who can I help? Who can I uplift? Salvation isn't about us helping ourselves. Salvation is actually about us helping others, right? We work out our salvation for the benefit of other people. And I think that's at the heart of the letter Philippians. And it's certainly at the heart of the passage that I want us to take a look at uh, this morning, found in Philippians chapter 2. Like we are saved individually, but we are saved within the context of a community, Right? Every single person has to come to grips individually with Jesus Christ and the claims of Jesus. You cannot be grandfathered into Christianity, grandfathered into the kingdom, grandfathered into the faith. That's an impossibility. Every human being has to come to grips with the claims of Jesus. But having been saved individually, you are now part of this body, this community, the body of Christ, which is not just a local body, but it's a global body for all times, past, present, and future. And spiritual maturity means seeing ourselves working for the benefit of others. Philippians chapter 2, uh, we're actually going to look at 12 to 30, but I'm going to just read, uh, for the sake of time, 12 to 18. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be, become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe." as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, having worshipped you um, through musical worship, God, and uh, we pray now that you are, as our hearts turn towards you to worship you through the preaching of your word and reflecting upon your word, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. Give us eyes to see what you'd have us see in the sacred text and give us hearts to respond to the promptings of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. 
So we work out our salvation for the benefit of others. And uh, Paul makes his case here, his point, uh, in four ways from our text. So first, Paul says that we have to grow for the good of others. Right? We grow for the good of others. Look at verse 12. He writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but uh, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the salvation that he's talking about here, and I've mentioned this a few weeks back, that salvation has two dimensions, right? There's the vertical dimension, right, our relationship with God, and then there's the horizontal dimension, our relationship with one another. And that aspect that he's getting at here uh, of working out our salvation, it's the horizontal. It's our relationship with one another. Why do I say that? A number of reasons, but that that expression fear and trembling in the Greek, it's used a few other times by Paul in the Greek, and it always refers to the horizontal, not to the, uh, to the vertical. So for example, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with, and here it is, great fear and trembling. Right? This is how he approached the Corinthians. Fear and trembling. This, this mutual humility. That's what Paul is getting at here. Working out this, this aspect of mutual humility towards one another. And this mutual humility is rooted in Jesus. Verse 12 begins with, Therefore, Right? So therefore, meaning based on what he's just written, which is 6 to 11, which we looked at last week, which is the Christ hymn. And 6, eight to, uh, six, six to 8 in particular, right? that Jesus, although being God, at the very apex of the universe, he laid aside his privileges and he laid aside his entitlements as God for the express purpose of serving, right? serving others. This exercising of mutual humility, Paul says it has to be relentless. This isn't just a one-off, it's relentless. He, he talks about in my presence and in my absence, combined with that present tense Greek verb, so it's this ongoingness to it, this, this sense of keep on working out your salvation, right? Keep on working it out. So spiritual maturity involves working out our salvation for the good of others, for the good of others. Right? As a pastor, and I spent a decade of my life in pastoral ministry, there's some aspects of pastoral ministry I just dove into, like, yay, this is great. And then there are other aspects, just being honest, not a big fan of. Full disclosure, not a big fan of. So, for example, visitation. I'm an introvert. You guys drain me. Not you. I didn't pastor here in general. But you know what? Being a pastor isn't just being up here. It's being out there with people, with the flock, with the sheep. So as a youth pastor, going to my schools, hanging out with my kids, and then with older people, going out for coffee, being in homes, praying with people in their homes. I did that regularly. Not because, oh, I love doing this. No. But as a pastor, that's my role. God wants me to do that. So I did that for the benefit, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of my flock. My spiritual maturity is about working out your salvation for the good of others. So we grow for the good of others. 
Second thing Paul says is that we have to recognize that God is the one who enables us to grow for the good of others. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So God is the true cause of my spiritual growth. The four there in verse 13, four, it is God. So the four introduces causality. Verse 13 enables verse 12. Verse 13, God is at work, enables me to work it out. And the emphasis on verse 13 is God. So, so literally he's saying God and God alone or God and God himself works in you. Paul echoes this thought in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants, plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. We change on the outside because God changes on the inside as his people, as his children. Right? Whatever changes come in terms of my behavior, in terms of my speech, attitude, whatever it is, is because God is at work in me, producing deep change in me, enabling those changes, that transformation to come about. John Ortberg, the author, in his book, The Me I Want to Be, he writes this. Listen to what he says. Spiritual growth doesn't mean a life of doing what I should do instead of what, instead of what I want to do. It means coming to want to do what I should do. Spiritual growth does not mean a life of doing what I should do instead of what I want to do. It means coming to want to do what I should do. That is God's transforming our hearts, transforming us from the inside out. And God works just as actively after conversion as he did in conversion. Verse 13, he uses the present tenses there in the Greek for works and for will and to act. He's like continually working in us. Right? He, didn't, he didn't stop once he brought us into the fold, into the faith. He didn't just stop, but he continues working in us. And so it's vital that we keep these two truths together. Right? That, that God works sovereignly works in us, but yet we work as well. And too often people try and use one to trump the other, and you can't. They're, they, they're both true. They're both totally true. God works. God always works. God works unconditionally, and that, that truth gives us comfort, gives us assurance, and not just all on me. God, who never fails, is at work. But because he works, I work. Right? Making me socially responsible, spiritually responsible. Right? Because God works and God always accomplishes his purposes doesn't mean, oh, you know what, I know God wants me to know his word, so I'll just slip it under my pillow at night. And then, you know, because he's all powerful, he can get that into my head, into my heart. He's not going to do that. He's not. God works. And because God works, I work. His enabling enables me to work and become responsible and be socially and spiritually responsible and relationally responsible. These truths are their intention, but they're, they, they're held together. We hold them together. So we have to recognize that God is the one who enables us to grow for the good of others. Third, we grow without griping about it. Verse 14 and 15, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless 
and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. You know, as humans, we're really good at complaining and griping. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that everybody in this place has at one time or another complained about the weather. Oh, it's so hot. And then when it's cool, oh, it's so cold. And then when it's raining, all it ever does is rain. And then when it doesn't rain, oh, my plants need water. Like we just complain. And you know what? It doesn't start at age of majority. It starts at age of vocality. When they first start talking, that's when it starts. I don't like this. How long? I'm bored. Like it starts early. As soon as they start speaking, that's when it starts. We are just, we just complain. We're just good at complaining. The word for complaining there is because Paul, what he's doing here, like he's saying that mature believers do everything about complaining and arguing. Mature believers, we submit to authority rather than gripe and complain about authority. And he's drawing this parallel uh, between the church here and the wilderness generation. Israel, the wilderness generation. The words for complaining there means grumble. It's used in uh, a number of times in the LXX, which is the Greek Bible for the early Christians. So when Paul quotes from the Old Testament, hither and yon in his letters, he's quoting from the LXX. So the word here in, in verse 14 for grumble, complain, is the word that's used a lot for the wilderness generation. They're grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses and against the leaders. And even when he says crooked and depraved, so that you may be, be without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, that language there, that word pairing, again, used to describe the wilderness generation in the Greek Bible. So there's a, scholars believe that part of the conflict in, in uh, Philippians is that there's a, a rift between the leadership and the laity. And so Paul is addressing that, that rift between the leadership and the laity. And he's basically saying, you know what, don't be like Israel in drawing this parallel. Don't be like them. Don't be like Israel. Hebrews puts it this way. He says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit for you. So mature believers submit to authority, and they do so consistently, right? He says, do everything, right, in all areas, not just, and, and everything is emphatic in the, in, in the Greek there in verse 14, like do everything, not just some things, right? When I used to do, do uh, premarital counseling, my wife and I with couples, like some issues, couples would just, yeah, this is awesome stuff, you know, like when you're talking about like relating to in-laws, they'll take that advice, just immediately jump on it, yeah, it's great, you know, re relating to in-laws or fighting fair, but then when it comes to money, and here's how you have to think about money, like money giving back to the Lord and to the church, like, uh, all of a sudden, like, uh, I don't know about that one, right? But mature believers submit to authority consistently and in all areas. And here's the thing, that mature believers grow more as they submit to authority. Look at what verse 15 says. Do everything without complaining or grumbling so that, there's a purpose, so that you may become blameless and pure. Right? That's the language of sanctification, being blameless and pure. Paul had already mentioned that in his prayer. Remember, we talked about his prayer a few weeks back, Philippians 1, 9 to 11, where Paul prays, 
that their love would grow so that they may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So sanctification, Christ-likeness, becoming like Jesus. That's God's purpose for you. That's God's purpose for me. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to pursue Christ-likeness? When you look at your life, the areas that comprise your life, do you want to pursue Christ-likeness? Part of pursuing Christ-likeness, according to our text, is submitting to authority. Submitting to authority. Now, obviously, one major, major, major caveat is that when authority goes awry, you don't submit to them. Right? When those who are over you are impressing you to do something um, unlawful, wicked, something that, that falls outside the, the boundaries of, of your conscience or of, your, of the word of God, then you don't submit. But insofar as they align with all these things, if we want to pursue Christ's likeness, that involves submission. Because in fact, as we, starting as little children, as we learn to submit, that's part of how God teaches us to submit to him as well. And mature believers also grow as they cling to God's word. Look at the first part of verse 16. As you hold out the word of life. So the NIV, and that's the NIV 84, uh, doesn't quite have it right there. Hold fast, which the New American Standard and some other translations have. That's really the better translation of that word, to hold fast the word of life, because the emphasis here, and really throughout um, Philippians, is sanctification, not evangelizing. So the word for hold fast, it means to focus on for the sake of application. Paul uses that word only one other time. First Timothy, he writes, Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life. There's the word that he uses. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So, Clinging to, holding fast to God's word. That's how we grow, by holding fast to God's word. And fourth, fourthly, we have to have, Paul says here, we have to have the right role models. Right? We mature. We, we are able to work out our salvation for the benefit of others by having the right role models. And sociologists will tell us that, like, to be human is to imitate, right? Like, to imitate is to be human. Like, as little kids, we imitate what's around us. And so, many of us, we have the mannerisms of our parents. I, I look at my kids, and, and they have some of my mannerisms, because they just, whether they consciously imitate or, or subconsciously imitate, that's just what we do. We imitate. I remember uh, when my kids were really young, and we went sledding. Uh, so, the youngest, he was just an infant, so he was uh, napping, and so... I took the, the older two, and they were at the time uh, eight and three. Took them sledding across the way. And so we're going down this hill and having a lot of fun. And, and then I, I, I went down the hill by myself on one run down, and I took this hard fall. And I, I just got up to my knees because it just hurt. I said, oh, oh, my chest, my chest, oh, oh, my chest, my chest. And then I just kind of, oh, man, I just kind of shook it off. And then we kept sledding, you know, had fun. They were oblivious. At least I thought they were oblivious. So then we get home. And uh, so we're at home and, and just chilling. And so my 8-year-old is, 
and we're all in the same room. My eight-year-old is watching probably iCarly at that point. And, and I'm just lying down on the couch. And, uh, and our, our three-year-old, he's at the window. And because the window ledge was high, so because he's only three, and so the window ledge is about this high for him. And so he's just got his cars, and he's just, he's just doing what he always did, just standing there and just playing with his cars. And I, just, I could watch that forever. It's just so cute, playing with his cars. And then, as he's doing that, and then just randomly, he just goes aside and he goes down to his knees and goes, oh, oh, my chest, my chest, oh, oh, my chest, my chest, boo-hoo-hoo. And I said, hey, I didn't cry. We just imitate, right? So the question isn't if we imitate. The question is, who are we going to imitate? And Paul has already given us the exemplar of imitation, right? Chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's the example. But then to go further, he gives them in the rest of the chapter examples of Jesus with skin on. And so the attitude of people that they are to, uh, they are the right role models, the people that we ought to be emulating are people who embrace other-centeredness. And the first example of Jesus with skin on is Timothy. Paul says that he's a lot like Paul. So if we go to verse 19 and 20, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. And so that expression, no one else like him, it, it, it means like-minded. So Timothy is like-minded. He's of the same mind as Paul, meaning he looks out for number two. Right? Let's keep reading. Timothy, who takes genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he's looking out for number two, the way Paul looks out for number two. But then he gives them another example which is Epaphroditus, who is one of their church members. So verses 25 and 26, he says, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. And for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And then just drop down to verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, make, uh, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. He risked his life to make up for the lack in the Philippian church's aid to Paul. Epaphroditus is looking out for number two. The way Timothy is looking out for number two. The way Paul looks out for number two. The way Jesus laid it aside. Privileges, entitlements, in order to serve other people, right? To look out for number two. So the right role models are people who embrace this other-centered mentality. And the right role models are also people who are proven in ministry. They're proven. Getting back to Timothy in verse 22, he says, But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He's proven Right? And that's what the word gets at. His character, he's proven over time. He's not a flash in the pan. Right? Judas was a flash in the pan. He soared like a comet for three years, and then boom, 
done. What we have to be emulating, emulating and taking on as role models people who are proven, people who embrace an other-centeredness and people who are proven, proven in ministry. Because having the right role models actually help us grow. That's part of sanctification. Because we imitate those that we're around. And so that helps us move forward in our, in our relationship with Jesus, having the right role models. Adrian Payne's coach at uh, Michigan State University was a coach. Well, he's still there. Um, coach Tom Izzo. Right? Tom Izzo is one of the greatest basketball coaches, college basketball coaches. And high school athletes, all-America high school athletes will leave sunny, sunny, balmy California and they'll leave the hot sands of Florida in order to travel to the cold, snowy state of Michigan to play for Tom Izzo, a very highly decorated coach. He's won national championships and all that kind of stuff. They'll leave those places to go to Michigan to be mentored by Coach Izzo, because that's what he does. He's not just about playing the game, let's win, let's win, but he's, he sees himself as mentoring these, these kids, they're 18 when they come to him, 17, 18, and mentor them and help them become men. Well, he was asked about Adrian Payne uh, a number of years back, and he's like, yeah, he, the guy amazes me. Adrian just amazes me. Izzo said how it's common for Adrian to show up to games early, before anybody else, and he'll hang out in, in the handicap section of the stadium and just sign autographs, sign autographs. And then after the game, where is he? Boom, back there, handicap section, signing autographs until everybody's autograph has been signed. That's kind of how Adrian was, Izzo said. And Izzo talked about this one time when Adrian uh, Payne asked him, to accompany him to the hospital because Adrian wanted to visit this eight-year-old girl named Lacey who had been suffering with cancer and had just taken a turn for the worse. And so Tom Izzo said, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. And so they're in that hospital room and, and Izzo just kind of sat back against the wall in the chair and he's just watching Adrian engage with this, this sick eight-year-old girl and they're just laughing and just having fun and joking around. And Izzo's just sitting there in awe. And how it just, for those moments, because her life is coming to an end. And he just was in awe of how, just for that time, it just seemed so normal and so okay. And Izzo said this. He said, of all the, of all the things I've done, and I've had some incredible experiences I wouldn't trade that moment for anything. I've never seen anything like that. I really hope I've taught Adrian something. Because that kid has taught me a lot. He's taught me a lot. Adrian Payne went to MSU to be mentored by Coach Tom Izzo, and the tables were turned. And Tom Izzo ends up being mentored by this young man. Remember what his high school teacher said. It's almost like he's, he's using all that pain from his past to say, how can, I, how can I turn this into positive? Who can I help? Who can I uplift? Remember this. Salvation and spiritual maturity 
is about working out our salvation for the benefit of those around us. So are you doing that? Are you doing that? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us new life in Jesus Christ, that Jesus left his home in heaven, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, our death on the cross, was raised again in order to um, establish a way, establish and reconnect a relationship with you through faith in him, who he is, and his work for us. We thank you for the new life that you have given us in Jesus Christ through faith in his name. And Father, we recognize that, that you have placed us into this community in order to serve one another, knowing that as we serve one another, um, we are serving you ultimately. So God, even as we desire to grow in our relationship with you, even our personal growth isn't just about us, but our growth helps those around us, helps them be better, more godly, helps them in their situation. So God, we pray that you'd help us regain that perspective of working out our salvation for your glory, but for the benefit of our brothers and sisters around us. Would you do that, Lord? Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to make connections with um, different people in our community. Lord, help us to see people as you see them, not through the eyes of sinners, Lord, but through the eyes of Savior, Jesus. We thank you for this, and we pray in Jesus' name.